0: Welcome to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message.
1: My wife sent me a Babylon B article a few weeks ago. It's the satirical website. It said this, in a brief exchange on Twitter last week, user Freethinker451 Said in a public conversation that he thought religion was poisoning people's minds. Not long after the comment was posted, Baptist Ben 590 replied to the comment with words that would change Freethinker 451's life forever. Quote, You're a moron, that is all, said the tweet from Baptist Ben 590. Later that day, Freethinker 451 announced publicly that he had repented of his sin and found Christ. All thanks to the tough love shown to him by Baptist Ben 590 online. Once I was lost, but now I'm found. Thank you, Ben, the post read. Baptist Ben 590 is only one of a network of Christian troll outreach ministries from the growing organization Trolls with a Mission. We spread the gospel by tearing people to shreds online, said the TWM founder Brad Gilkey, and also by calling them total morons. Maybe you didn't like that. I liked it. It was really funny. Uh, Is that literally true? Well, no. No, of course it's not literally true. It's a piece of satire. It was kind of a joke written for fun. It didn't literally happen, but here's the deal. Just because that didn't literally happen does not mean it doesn't contain truth, right? In other words, even though it didn't really happen, that small little article... It's got something to teach us. It's moving us right, to do something differently. It's, it's a rebuke to those of us who believe being a jerk for Jesus online is an effective way to preach the gospel to other people and to show the legitimacy of the Christian faith. It's, it's not. And moreover, it's hopefully, this article in a small way, is hopefully going to change our online habits, get us to evaluate, get us to think about, okay, this post, calling that person a moron, I don't think anybody's called anybody a moron here, hopefully, is that really the most effective way to show the love of Jesus? That article had truth to communicate, even though it was never meant to be taken literally. We are continuing our sermon series called Hey Siri, Sorry if your phone is activated there. Of of questions that were asked by you. And tonight's question is this, when do I take the Bible literally? When do I take the Bible literally? It's a great question. And the short answer is it kind of depends. But, but, and here, here's what I want you to get. Even if a passage of scripture isn't meant to be taken literally, I hope you see and I hope you get that it still has truth to communicate. It's still useful for us. It's still there for us to do something, to try to move us to do something today. Is that how you see the Bible? Or do you see it differently? 2 Timothy 3:16, seen this a lot lately. All scripture is God breathed. And it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice it doesn't say some scripture is God breathed. It doesn't say certain passages are useful for teaching and for training. No, it says all of it is. You see, the Bible wasn't written to us, but it's written for us. And this passage tells us why. Why is the Bible written for us? Well, we need to be taught. We need to be corrected. We need to be rebuked. We need to be trained. At a seminary professor one time, I'll never forget it. It was cheesy, but it works. Uh, Sorry, you'll get the pun in a second. He said, the Bible views us as Swiss cheese. Right? We're full of holes. We're incomplete. And so if we're Christians, we are currently not as thoroughly equipped right now at this moment as God wants us to be. Now, now don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that you and I, we need to get our act together before God can love us, or somehow if we sin and fall out of God's good graces, that we somehow need to clean ourselves up again before he will love us. I'm not saying that. King Jesus died and rose for sinners like you and me while we were his enemies. End of story. And because of that fact, we devote our complete allegiance to him thanks to that world-changing event 2,000 years ago. And at the very same time, a life spent following Jesus is a life of continual growth. Not so that we'll be saved, but because we're saved. You see, we're all, if you're a Christian, that means you're an incomplete family member who's continually progressing, continually growing. And here's the deal, all of the Bible... As God's means of that growth. But then we get to our question, right? The great question. Uh, to understand what God is saying to us, we got to know what's being said. And a lot of times that is easier said than done. I mean, let's be honest. it's a 2,000 plus year old book. The Bible is foreign. It's weird. And it's even offensive at times. The meaning of certain passages is not always self-evident. And what are we supposed to do in light of certain passages that are not always clear cut where you got a lot of different interpretations of these things, right? Let me give three quick examples. We could spend a lot of time here. Three quick examples. A couple weeks ago, my wife um, did this. I don't even know what you call it, but it's a fake temporary tattoo with Scripture uh, on it, a little design. You can look at it. It helps you memorize Scripture. It's great. She put it on her blog. A lot of people really liked it. And then there was just one, uh, one comment. might have been working for that uh, Christian ministry of trolls. It said, Leviticus 19.28, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves I am the Lord. Like, that's all it was. There's no explanation, no nothing. My wife was like, what do I do? I don't know. I said, I don't know. Glad it's not me. What's that mean? I don't have any tattoos. What's that mean? Do we take that verse behind us literally? How do we know? Or how about this one? Mark 10. But Jesus said again, speaking to disciples and people listening to him, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Do we take that literally? Clearly, it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So does that mean that rich people, whoever they are, they're out of luck? You know, a literal reading of Scripture seems to say so. Last one. Mark 16, end of the Gospel of Mark. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, in Jesus' name, they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. I recently came across a story of a pastor who he and his church, they took this Mark passage literally. Uh, this guy had a sincere conviction that he could handle poisonous snakes, and he did so for several years. But you know where this is going? On one particular Sunday, he was handling these snakes, and one of them bit him. And he dropped it, picked it right back up, and kept on going. Refused medical treatment like he always did. And he went home shortly after the service to take a nap. He wasn't feeling well. He said he wanted to pray about it. And he died shortly after. He, he, he died shortly after. And, and while his sincerity was unquestionable, based on uh, him refusing medical intervention, the way that he read his Bible, that was questionable, unfortunately. I think that story, it's, it's extreme, yes, and it's tragic, yes, but it's really relevant. And it's a relevant warning to all of us because it shows us the consequences that can come from misreading, from misquoting, from misapplying, from misinterpreting the Bible. You see, how we read and interpret the Bible matters. 2 Peter 3, 16, uh, the Apostle Peter is writing this letter, and he is talking about the Apostle Paul and his writings. His letters, the Apostle Paul's letters, contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Three, three quick observations here. First one, notice that there are some things that are hard to understand in the Bible. True, right? Not everything, but, but some things, to be sure. The second thing, it says it is possible to distort portions of the scripture. For sure true. But think about the reverse. If it's possible to distort certain portions, well, guess what? It's actually possible to get certain portions of them right. In other words, that it assumes that there is a correct and faithful interpretation of the scriptures. Last one if we make a practice of distorting the scriptures intentionally or unintentionally, we are sowing the seeds of our own destruction. That's a serious verse. But here's the deal. It doesn't have to happen this way if we don't want it to. You see, it's possible, just like that verse said and it implied, it's possible to faithfully read and apply the Bible to our own lives. And so the question that we have to ask is, do we want to? Do you want to read the Bible? Do you want to read the Bible faithfully the way it was intended to be read? I've got one goal for us tonight, really, really simple, and it fits well, fits well with a, a parable that I know we've all heard here's the parable give a person a fish and you feed them for a day teach a person to fish you feed them for their lives tonight my goal is not to give you guys a bunch of fish we're not going to go through passage by passage and take all of the the maybe controversial and weird passages teach you how to do that I'm not interested in doing that but instead my goal tonight is to teach you guys how to fish I want to help you navigate the terrain of the Bible. I want to help equip each of us in this room and anybody listening online or on the podcast how to read, how to interpret, and how to apply the Bible faithfully. You see, the Bible is its like an atlas with a lot of different maps. There are 66 books in the Bible, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. These books were written by several different authors, Over a period of thousands of years. And each book, here's the deal. Each book has a different author with a different purpose to a different group of people. See, this is not a book that we can just pick up and intuitively and immediately grasp any more than we can do the same thing with a nuclear physics textbook. Just pull it off the shelf and read about some thermodynamics. Yes, I understand. No, we can't can't do that. Reading the Bible, because of all those factors, it's very much a cross-cultural experience saw this, uh, maybe you've seen this uh, ad a few years ago. Google had this billboard up on on certain places in certain cities. It's this big-time, complicated math problem. And it was aimed primarily at people interested in problem-solving and computer technology. Of the 400,000 people who tried to solve this problem, 1% of people got it right. And you know what happened if you got it right and you submitted it right? You got a job at Google. Isn't that awesome? It's kind of an ingenious way to recruit the best of the best. I wish I'd thought of it. Here's the deal. The Bible does not work like that. That's not how the Bible works. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Anybody can understand the Bible. Its message is able to be comprehended. Why am I telling this? How do I know? Psalm 19:7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. In other words, all of us are simple in some way or another, and it is able we are able to be made wise by the testimony of the Lord, by the writings we have in the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 15, the Apostle Paul is writing to his protege, a pastor named Timothy, and he says, From infancy, you, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, what? Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See, the message of the Bible is not a complicated math problem on a billboard. And to be sure, sometimes it feels like that, but the truth is that it's able to be understood. Now, there's gonna be times when we have to put our thinking caps on and we have to read and we have to study and we have to ask questions because some things aren't clear. That's for sure true. But I hope you see, and don't miss this, for those who are willing and able to put in the time and the work, the Bible's able to make us wise. It makes wise the simple. A couple years ago, I made a attempted. To make a chocolate coffee cake for Valentine's Day for my wife, uh, I had been a bad husband and feeling a little bit guilty and just kind of caught up in the moment of the holiday. Whatever, it's fine, it's good. Love the holiday, uh, and so I decided, you know, I'm gonna surprise my wife. So I got up at one in the morning, very quietly, very stealthily. Yeah. Yeah, you know where this is going. And I tried and I attempted to make this cake. And I it was a complicated recipe, but I did it all. I got all the ingredients. I got everything right. I covered it nice and neat with the saran wrap that I got all tangled up. But anyway, put it in the fridge. Then I got up a couple hours later, preheated the oven, put it in there at five in the morning. By six a.m., when Polly strolls out looking beautiful, by the way, uh, she took a bite of that cake, and she paused, and she kind of looks around a little bit, and and I went, uh oh. And so then I took a bite of the cake, and I knew immediately that I had done a very bad thing. One of the steps in this recipe, I said chocolate coffee cake, it called for three cups of coffee. Well, my 1 a.m. brain ground up three cups of coffee and then dumped it into the mix. Coffee equals liquid, not grounds. And so when she took that bite, she, hmm, that's really good. And so when I took the bite, I could taste the coffee grounds. I went, I just, we just laughed and threw the cake away, and Valentine's Day was ruined forever. Uh, but, but you get it, right? I got every single other ingredient right except that one. And because I got that one wrong, it ruined the entire thing. Here's the deal. In an effort to help us to understand the terrain of the Bible, in an effort to teach us how to fish, we have got to know, and what we're going to talk about are three main ingredients that go into reading the Bible faithfully. Not the only three, but three main ones. Really important. If we get one of them wrong, we're going to ruin the recipe, we're going to ruin the entree. So it's really important not to do what I did. Don't have a 1 a.m. brain, just a new phrase I just coined there. And we got to get them right. And here's the deal. These, these things, like cooking, it takes time. The only way you get better at cooking is to cook more. And in the same way, the only get, way to get better at these and to practice these is to keep practicing. And if and when we get it right, we get a fantastic entree. We see it. We experience the Bible for the beauty that it is. But if we get it wrong, and even one of them, we're going to screw it up. And here's the deal. That's not the Bible's fault. It's our fault. Just like the fact that that cake was terrible, it wasn't a cake's fault, it was my fault. So, three ingredients to reading the Bible faithfully. Here's the first, genre. Genre is just the type of literature that we're reading. Knowing the genre tells us what kind of structure to expect. Think about the structure of an essay. You know what an essay is. You know how to read the essay compared to the structure of an opinion piece in the New York Times or the Missourian. Genre tells us about the goals that the author is trying to accomplish, right? Now, most times, knowing the genre, it's basically automated, right? Our internal operating systems are running the software of these different genres very easily, very naturally. We can intuit and understand and know how to interact with a cookbook versus a textbook versus a tweet versus a love letter, all of those different things. And so the Bible is no different. It's it's full of different kinds of genres. Some are more familiar than others, but each of these genres, they play by a set of rules. Each of these genres helps to create a structure, and they tell us about the goal that the author is trying to accomplish. And so to read the Bible well, we got to know the genre. Okay, real quick, three main types. You ready? Here's the first. Discourse this is kind of speeches this is letters these are essays this type of genre works by building a sequence of ideas into a linear argument that requires a logical response hey have you thought about this thing if not you should and when you think about this thing naturally you're going to start doing this thing and stop doing this thing right that's, that's kind of how discourse works persuades with reason forces us to think logically and consistently about something and do it so, some examples of, of things, ways, things that we see this in the Bible you have collections of laws. You have some of the wisdom literature in the Proverbs. You have new, letter, new Testament letters written by the apostles that mainly use discourse. You know the really interesting thing? You know how much uh, discourse shows up in the Bible? It's about 24%. Not even one in four chapters of the Bible. There are three-fourths of the Bible in other genres. Here's another one, poetry. Poetry makes up about a third of the Bible, 33%. When a biblical author uses poetry, they're speaking through dense and creative language, linking together images to help us envision and think about a world differently. The things written in poetry, they might not be literally true, but there's truth to be found. They, they use poetry, we know this, right, uses metaphors and symbols to evoke our emoji, emotion and imagination. Now, here's the deal. I'll be honest. Personally, I'm not a poetry guy. It doesn't land with me. I'd rather just somebody tell it to me straight, let's stop beating around the bush. And great, I love the flowers and the plants and all that, but what are you trying to tell me? Uh, there's, there's, but here's the deal. Why would God give us a third of the Bible in poetry? That makes me pause. I've got to ask Why? Here's why I think, just one one response, uh, thinking about it. it, I think in life, we tend to form mental ruts, right? And we think in these familiar, well-worn paths that are hard to get out of through logic and reasoning. And what good poetry does is it forces us off those well-worn paths. It forces us to step off the familiar and go into the unfamiliar and think about something that we think we know from a different perspective, right? It challenges us in a good way. Examples of poetry in the Bible, we've got the Psalms. There's reflective poetry in part of the wisdom books like Proverbs and for sure the prophets. If you've ever read a prophet, then you know. Prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they use poetry a lot. Discourse, poetry, last one, narrative. Get this, 43% of the Bible, almost half is narrative. Why? Well, if you think about it, stories are the most universal form of human communication. They're doing so much research, and they're finding out that our brains are actually hardwired to take information in through story. It's really intriguing, right? Stories are enjoyable, and they, they when <clears throat> stories are enjoyable, and they train us right to make seemingly random events make sense in our lives. So we take these events and we we make sense of them, put them in a sequence. There's lots of rules, and I'm not going to bore you any more than I am already, lots of rules on how to read biblical narrative faithfully. I'm going to give you one just to get started. One just to get started. When we read narratives in the Bible, we have to let the trees, sorry, let me start that over. We have to let the forest interpret the trees. Let the forest interpret the trees, not vice versa. In other words, if we want to get at what a specific verse means in a biblical narrative, we have to zoom out to see what kind of forest that particular tree is in. Let me give you an example. The Bible Project video, if you've ever watched these videos, they're great. If you haven't, you should. They do a video, and I want us to watch it, about the story of Gideon in the Old Testament book of Judges to give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Let's watch this
2: the story about Gideon. There's this well-known scene where Gideon's trying to discern whether God will help him win a battle and he requests a sign from God. Yeah,
3: Gideon lays a wolf fleece on the ground and asks that in the morning the fleece be wet with dew, but the ground totally dry and God does it.
2: Now, if you look at this scene just by itself, what is the conflict?
3: How can Gideon know if he'll succeed? And the resolution?
2: Test God, ask for a sign, and find out. Yeah, and that's how many people actually read this story and it totally misses the point because it's ignoring the larger plot line. Really? Yeah, so let's start from the beginning. You'll get the context. The story begins with Gideon and the Israelites living in fear because they're oppressed by an invading people, the Midianites. Got it. Then there's the call to action. God commissions Gideon to defeat the Midianites and save Israel. Yeah, this
3: is shaping up to be a good story.
2: But then Gideon's super hesitant so he asks God to do this magic trick a sign so I can know it's really you talking to me and God stoops to his level he gives him a sign by lighting this fire on an altar
3: so Gideon's already asked for a sign
2: and that's not all in the next scene God tells Gideon to tear down an altar to another God but Gideon's so afraid he does it at night so Gideon's skeptical and also a bit of a coward Then we come to the moment where Gideon's about to face the Midianites, and he's still uncertain, so he asks for another sign, the fleece. He says, I want to know if you'll save Israel by my hand. And God gives him that sign. And he's still uncertain, so he asks for even one more sign, which is just a variation of the previous sign.
3: Okay, so Gideon's asking for way too many signs.
2: Exactly. In the larger context, it's clear the plot conflict is not How can Gideon discern the mysterious will of God? The real conflict is when will this guy get his act together and start trusting God?
3: Okay, so then what's the resolution?
2: We have to keep reading. So Gideon gathers this huge army, 30,000 soldiers to fight the Midianites and God says, now, way too many men. He whittles the army down to 300. Why would he do that? Well, Gideon's been testing God, so now God returns the favor. He tells Gideon to arm these 300 soldiers with trumpets and torches and then surround the Midianites at night and make all this noise in the hills, which sounds ridiculous, but Gideon does it. And the noise scares the Midianites into this frenzy, they start destroying each other in the dark while Gideon looks on safely from the hills. So this story isn't
3: offering the reader tips for discerning God's will.
2: No, it's about God's commitment to use weak people with deep flaws to do more than they could have imagined.
1: So you heard it, right? If we let that tree determine the forest in the story of Gideon, we're going to miss it. We're going to think that the story of Gideon is about how to discern the mysterious will of God, right? He takes that fleece and asks, how can I know your will? But when we let the forest determine the trees and we zoom out and see the surrounding context, we see instead that the story of Gideon is a story about a guy who needs to get his act together, who needs to begin trusting God. It's about how God is committing, like they said, to use deeply flawed people to do more than they could ever imagine. Forest interpret the trees. Okay, so three main genres, discourse, poetry, narrative. To be clear, every biblical book is a unique combination of these genres. So it's not like Genesis is narrative and then uh, the Gospel of John is discourse. No, there's a bunch of different ones. And so some examples, Isaiah, mainly poetic, but you get to chapters 36 to 39, there's some narrative in there. Exodus, mainly a narrative, but then you get if you get to the end of the book, maybe you tail off. 25 to 31, it's a bunch of tedious laws about how to build the tabernacle right different genres and so to read the bible well we got to put on these different appropriate lenses and if not things are going to get fuzzy anybody ever watched a 3d movie without the glasses on or just kind of like what am I missing oh yeah okay yeah I'm going to keep the glasses right anybody tried to wear your grandma's four inch thick glasses or try to wear your own glasses with contact lenses on right you know it's fuzzy it's weird doesn't work It's the same thing with genres in the Bible. When we read them with the correct lenses on, we're going to be able to see more clearly what God, through the author, is intending for us to get. And this helps bring the parts and the details of the book into focus. Okay, that was a long one, but genre, that's the first ingredient. Second ingredient, cultural context. Since the Bible wasn't written to us, there are a lot of things culturally that the Bible is silent on that doesn't explain, that assumes its original audience knows that are very foreign and unfamiliar to us. Like I said, every time we open our Bibles, we're having a cross-cultural experience. I mean, think about it. We're living in the West. The Bible comes from the ancient Near East. We live in the digital age. They were living in the Iron Age. When we get hungry, we go to the grocery store. They went to the field. We speak English. They spoke mainly Hebrew and Aramaic. In Greek, that's what the New Testament was written in. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example of this. Genesis 24. So Abraham, he's commanding his head servant to go and to find a wife for his son Isaac. That's a whole separate sermon. But verse 2 starts with this. Abraham, he said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. okay. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. In our cultural context, to say the least, this is not normal. This is not how we do things today. But remember, the Bible is not a complex math problem on a billboard. It's able to be understood. And so rather than stopping and giving up or just making the easy excuse of, well, this is pointless, can't figure it out, keeping it at arm's length, we need to do as what Jen, Jen Wilkin, a great author and pastor and sorry, author and author speaker says, we need to see with their eyes and hear with their ears. I like how another pastor at the crossing says, says that when we read the Bible, we need to hear with ancient ears. We need to see with ancient eyes. In other words, we need to try to see things and hear things the way that the original audience sees them. And so when we do that, what's going on in this Genesis passage? Well, here's the deal. By placing your hand under the thigh, the servant here is formally committing himself to fulfilling the terms of Abraham's instructions. And it's likely that he put his hand under the thigh. This is indicating that submission to that person, to Abraham's strength and authority. And so, so now that we've heard with ancient ears and seen with ancient eyes, we can start to make connections, right? We start to see that this isn't so weird at all. This, what we just read, is kind of like a modern-day signing of a formal legal contract. And that lets us know that the seriousness of this oath that the servant had to take, he, it's a serious business to try to find a wife for Abraham. So going, going back to the main point, if we don't add the ingredient of knowing the cultural context, the Bible's going to remain a foreign, a weird and irrelevant book, and we're going to keep it at arm's length, and it's going to be easy to brush off. But we got to ask, are we willing to do the work? Are we willing to add this ingredient to reading the Bible? So when we know the genre, we know the context, we're on the way to knowing the third ingredient, which is the original Intent. Every book in the Bible was written by a real person to real people in a real place in a real time for a real reason. And our goal is to try and hear that message, just like we said. Hear that message the way the original audience heard that message. Ask, why did they write it? And when we do this, if you think about it, we're we're practicing the golden rule. We're practicing the golden rule. We are treating others the way we would want to be treated. Think about this. When we communicate in an email, in a tweet, face-to-face conversation, we want and assume the other person will go through the hard work of hearing us and understanding our original intent and not distorting or taking our words out of context. If somebody did did that, that's messed up, number one. And number two, the message gets lost and gets distorted. We don't want them to do that to us so why should we do that to the Bible? Why should we do that to the biblical authors? It's no different when we approach this. There's actually a fourth ingredient, and, and quickly, it's reasoned, faithful application. I don't have time to talk about it. I wish I had more time. I'll say this, though. Uh, it's not enough to just read and to study the Bible and leave it in the cloud. We've got to bring it down to real life. That's one of the reasons, to be honest, why I love and we love Bob Goff so much because he does this really well. There's a point in his book, I don't know where, but he says he doesn't call it a Bible study, he calls it a Bible doing. Personally, I think we need both, study and doing, but neither here nor there. But you get his point, right? His point is we gotta stop thinking about how do we love God, how do we love others? We gotta start doing it. And man, if you've read his books, if not, you should. He's inspiring to see and to, to see him love people well. I think that's why people love him so much. Here's the deal we're not going to get all these ingredients down in one sitting. Like, don't try tomorrow, go do all these things, go, good, got it, let me move on. No, just like cooking, right? Knowing the genre and the cultural context and the original intent and the application, it takes time and it takes help. Every time we approach the Bible and try to read it, we need to ask God for eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. And we can't just read the Bible by ourselves. We need, to, we need other people to read it with, to ask questions, to discuss it, kind of put it under a microscope and learn and ask questions together. And we got to learn from other scholars who, and pastors who are smarter than us. That's why, uh, if you you know me, I talk about all the time, study Bibles are so important, such a help, because they have the thoughts of scholars and pastors about the genre, about the cultural context, about how to apply. We need this help. We've actually got a couple of good ones on sale. Not all study Bibles are created equal. There's a couple of good ones on sale. If you're interested and want to check them out, go, go talk to us after. I got a lot of rugs in my house. Too many. I think 13. It's sad. Uh, there's a big one in our living room. It, I, I think it's really nice. My wife picked it out. If you don't like it, don't tell me. Just lie to me. That's fine. Anyway, earlier this week, I was hanging out in the living room. I was wrestling with the dogs and the kids, and it was crazy. But for whatever reason, I stopped and amidst the chaos, and I just, I just saw the rug. And I was like, wow, this is actually a really pretty rug. It's got a beautiful, intricate detail. I know, weird, right? Uh, I started noticing the intricate designs that were on this rug. I started to think about just the complexity of the colors and the threads and how each thread and each color is important and crucial to the overall design. I think we've gotten as close as we're going to get here. You know, if you think about it, if, if even one thread, one color isn't in that right spot it's supposed to be, it can change the overall design. And in many ways, the Bible is like this rug. It is filled with the diverse threads of the authors and the genres and the contexts and the intents. And from all of this complexity and diversity, God has woven together a beautiful design that's ultimately about one story, one person. You see, in the end, the central and the unified design, so to speak, of the Bible is Jesus. It's all about him and what he's done and what he's doing. When we put it all together, the Bible is telling one amazing, grand, and literally true story. It tells the story of God's good creation of humankind, every single person, and every single time, and every single place, I'll rebellion against that God. It tells of God's plan of redemption in and through Jesus, who through his literal death and resurrection and ascension has now set the entire world, the entire cosmos, on a trajectory towards restoration. That's what the Bible's about. These events, they happened in real time, in real history, and God calls us to believe them and to pledge our allegiance to him with our entire lives, all of our being, all of our might, all of our strength. But we have to hear that story, that more satisfying, the truer and the bigger story. We've got to hear it in the way that's been given to us. We've got to cooperate with the terrain of the Bible we got to conform our eyes and our ears and our hearts to it, not the other way around. We have to let the Bible speak to us in the way it was written. We don't approach the Bible the way we think it should be written. The Bible is an atlas with many different maps. We've got to add those ingredients faithfully and correctly. We've got to hear with ancient ears, see with ancient eyes. And if we misread and if we misquote and misinterpret and misapply and distort, whether intentionally or not, even one thread, even one piece, we're going to distort the final design, and we're going to risk sowing the seeds of our own destruction. Do you read the Bible? How are you reading the Bible? Are you hearing it with ancient ears and seeing it with ancient eyes? Have you seen who and what this story is all about? Are you watching a three-day movie without the glasses on? As the, the music team comes up, I want to close just with one story. A friend a few years ago, he went to Israel on a, on a trip for a couple weeks, and he landed, he was jet-lagged, kind of all thrown off, and all he wanted was a cup of coffee. Just wanted some coffee. It'll help him get through the next day. So he goes to the little cafe in the airport. He asks his tour guide, uh, hey, what, or ask the, the person at the counter, hey, can I have some coffee? Gives it to him, goes and sits down, takes his first sip, and realizes he got a cappuccino. So he's like, great, all right, fine, language barrier, whatever. So he goes back up again. He's really apologetic. I'm sorry, I, I asked for coffee, black coffee. Can you give me that? And so the cafe worker's like, okay, takes it back, comes back with another drink, sits back down, drinks it again cappuccino. So at this point, he's starting to realize, okay, uh, it's, it's probably not them, it's me. So he goes and he asks his tour guide, hey, what's going on? I'm asking for coffee and them getting a cappuccino. And the tour guide just laughs in his face. He says, oh, bless your heart, you didn't know. Israel doesn't serve coffee. Israel doesn't serve coffee. You know what they serve, though, is espresso. They serve espresso. That's what they're known for. And so he goes up, ordered it, tried it at first, didn't like it. It was very bitter, but he figured, you know what? I'm tired. I need some caffeine. need something, and I'm in Israel. might as well just jump all in with this cultural experience. So he kept trying it again and again. By the end of the trip, he loved it. To this day, he bought one of the world-class espresso makers. That's all he drinks. When we try to read the Bible as something is not, when we end up asking for things that the Bible is not offering, and when we end up getting things that we didn't ask for and we don't like— It's like asking for coffee in Israel. But if we read and if we interact with the Bible the way it's inviting us to do, well, then we're asking for espresso. And if we stick with it, if we jump all in, if we cooperate with it, allow ourselves to enjoy it, it's going to be satisfying. It's going to be good. It's going to be enriching because this is the story that we were made for, whether we know it or not understanding the terrain of the Bible, understanding the genre and the cultural context and the original intent and application, it's going to help us put the Bible into focus. We're going to be able to see the beauty and the grandeur of the larger design. We'll see that the Bible is the true and better story of King Jesus, redeeming the entire world. That redemption, it was inaugurated in the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. It set the entire world on a trajectory towards restoration, and Jesus is continuing that redemption and restoration in and through his people. There's an invitation to follow him. It's always on the table, not too late. The question is if we'll join him. Let's stop asking for coffee in Israel and enjoy the espresso that the Bible has to offer
0: Thanks for listening to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.